Thanks for listening to the Secular Hubcast, a podcast made possible through a grant from the American Humanist Association. This show is a project of the Secular Hub, a Denver nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting community, altruism, reason, and education across the diverse secular community of the Front Range region. For more information and to become a member, visit secularhub.org. Hello and welcome to the Secular Hubcast. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about morality in an episode I want to call Moral Landscaping. Now, I'm piggybacking off of Sam Harris a bit on this, but I think for good reason. I think he brought up some very good points in the moral landscape, and I want to expand on those points because I've heard a couple of particular criticisms of that book, and I think they're valid. Uh, One was that he didn't provide any kind of moral foundation. He just mentioned that a moral landscape can exist and that science and reason and evidence can inform that moral landscape. And then two, I've been listening to uh, The Amazing Atheist, that's T.J. Kirk, and he has a very interesting perspective on subjective morality. I've also heard a lot of people talk about morality as being subjective, and I want to push back on that, and I want to push back on Sam Harris's idea that morality is objective. I want to try to mold the two together or combine the two, because I think, I, I think the point here is that there are two elements to morality. One of them clearly is objective. I don't think that we can argue against an objective element or component to morality then there's also a subjective element or component to morality. And I don't think we can argue against that either. So let's dive in right away and start our moral landscaping. So let's start with the objective elements of morality. I think it's safe to say at this point that the objective world and how we come to understand the objective world, so the scientific method, um, informs us about what is and isn't moral. If, if we take the elephant in the room on here and we talk about the morality of burning fossil fuels, I don't think anybody can argue that at one point in our history, burning fossil fuels was a moral good. And we have to give credit where credit's due. We benefited greatly from the burning of fossil fuels in our in our history, in our past. And we currently benefit greatly from burning fossil fuels. It it fuels our hospitals, it it illuminates our bedrooms, it cools our food in our refrigerators right without without these things disease death uh infection would be widespread in a way that is incomprehensible to us as modern humans in a modern society so burning fossil fuels is was and may continue to be a moral good 
what does the chemistry of our air, the chemistry of our climate and atmosphere tell us? It tells us that there's a tipping point. It tells us that there is a certain parts per million of carbon dioxide and methane that if we go, if, if we surpass that parts per million, we can expect global change. This is all information based in the objective world. This is all chemistry, which couldn't be more scientific, couldn't be more objective. And it all informs us about how we ought to behave in the present. So what, what dilemmas do we find ourselves in now? We actually have a moral dilemma to address because of our understanding of chemistry in our atmosphere and in our air. We would not have, in other words, we would not be having a moral discussion about whether we ought to go to renewables, whether we ought to save the planet for future generations, whether we ought to advance our technology past the burning of fossil fuels. We wouldn't even be having this discussion if it weren't for the observable, verifiable, falsifiable objective reality, specifically the chemistry of our atmosphere and our air quality. I think at this point, it is impossible not to, at least to some degree, concede that morality and moral decisions is in direct relation to the objective world. In this way, morality is objective. Is it objective in the way that religious people want it to be objective? Is it objective in the way that there is actually an entity out there, a god who by fiat uh, declares what is or isn't moral? No, it's not, it's not objective in that way. There is no standard other than the standard of reality. What in our ob objective world causes human suffering and what causes human flourishing? I think there's no question that the burning of fossil fuels has helped us flourish as humans. But at some point, we have to recognize that continuing to increase the CO2 and, and methane of our atmosphere has a negative impact on not just our current situation as human beings, but that of future generations. Let's take another example of how the objective world, the world outside of us, informs our morality. So when we're determining whether or not our actions are moral or immoral, or whether or not, let's say, the way that we set up society or the systems therein, how do we know that we've committed an immoral act? Well, one of the ways that we do that is by asking the folks around us to determine if they've been morally wronged. These are external to us. These are objects in the world. They're not in our heads. They're not a part of our subjective experience in the sense that we don't create them. We're not solipsists. We, we don't create the objective world in our mind. And the testimony of the folks that say we've been doing something wrong to them are real objective facts. Let's take the idea of slavery. So if we want an objective understanding of the damage and immorality of slavery, all we need to do is look at and ask the slaves. Those are objective people, not in your head, that can inform you about the, the nature of your actions. So 
when we talk about subjective morality, I think there's a lot of validity in the idea that morality has a subjective component. There are people that say that morality is subjective, full stop. And that's because of a couple different reasons. The things that I hear the most are that the individual decides what's moral. So an individual may think, well, I'm the kind of person that thinks raping is moral. I don't see a problem with it, so I'm going to do that. And so the subject committing the act, whether it's quote-unquote moral or immoral, the person is the arbiter of whether or not their act is moral or immoral. It's based on what they believe to be moral or immoral. Or a lot of people will say, well, society determines what is or isn't moral. It was a part of their culture. So for them, at that time, that was moral. And I think both of these examples have it the wrong way around. To determine if something is moral or immoral, we have to ask the... I'm going to put it in quotes here, but the victim. The subjective nature of morality is in the subject, which is, in this case, the victim. Was it causing them pain and suffering unnecessarily? The subjectivity of morality seems to me that when most people talk about it, they forget about the victim. If we're going to talk about subjective morality, we have to recognize that the subject being acted upon or the victim is the person that determines whether or not a moral injustice has occurred. That's where the subjectivity lies. So if you're still confused about morality, and if what I'm saying doesn't make any sense to you, we're talking about either flourishing happiness on the one side of the spectrum or pain, suffering, and misery on the other side of the spectrum. That's the realm of morality. That is the overall landscape. If you're not talking about that, then you're not talking about morality. So that's why all of my examples involve humans. And when I talk about the subjectivity of morality, I'm talking about human subjects. And when I talk about the objectivity of morality, I'm not just talking about chemistry or physics in and of themselves, but I'm talking about how those objective data points in the world interact with human beings. So I'm here with Jesse Gilbertson. This is Paul Schilling, your host. Hello, Paul. Hi, Jesse. And today we are going to conduct what I'm calling some moral landscaping. The moral landscaping that we're going to do here today, I'm just trying to do sort of a mind walk. I want to lay out the foundation of morality. I want to lay out something that people can actually wrestle with. Instead of just making it an idea of it's, it is objective or it is subjective or whatever and leaving it very loose and not nailing anything down, I actually want to nail down some of the foundational elements of what morality is and what it is that we're talking about. All right. And Jesse has agreed very generously to donate his time and his brain power to hear what I have to say, to push back on anything that doesn't sound right to him, or to, you know, provide some kind of feedback so that we stay on track for one, for two, so that what I say makes sense, and then hopefully to help hone these ideas and sort of narrow them down into even more understandable concepts and more applicable. So... Thank you. Well, I'll do my best. I'm ready. I'm here to serve. Yes, sir. So, uh, so initially I want to say, okay, so... Actually, well, can I ask a question first? Yeah, please, go ahead. How do you define morals? 
how do I define morals? Yeah, is there a simple definition that you use? Mm-hmm. If you read the moral landscape, what Sam Harris got right was that we basically measure morals and values on a continuum. So on one side, we're talking about the flourishing, happiness, and satisfaction of moral creatures. I'm going to just I'm just going to narrow it down to human beings because I think t- in order to be moral, we have to talk about human well-being or human suffering. And the minimum component is human beings. We could add dolphins and chimpanzees and bonobos, but the minimum common denominator, the lowest common denominator if we're talking about morality would be human beings and human morality as we are humans, and so we're going to talk about our own species. Okay. So we're talking about a continuum. So the definition of morals are ideas and modes of thinking and concepts that relate to the continuum where human beings on the one side have uh, increased happiness, increased well-being, increased flourishing, increased satisfaction. And on the other end, uh, more misery, more pain, more suffering, and more dissatisfaction with life. So when we're talking about morals, and if we're talking about a moral situation, we're talking about decisions, and we're talking about systems like societal systems, moral systems, economic systems, you know, family systems, uh, how, to, how to raise children, for instance, would be a moral question, because it relates to how human beings uh, fall on that continuum. Okay, that sounds that all sounds pretty good to me. That sounds okay. Sure. Okay. I haven't again. I haven't read Sam Harris's book. I have. Sure. I have sort of. I definitely have experience with other systems, moral systems that are out there. But I definitely, I definitely agree with the concept that it's about humans. Humans, you know, in trying to improve people's situation, mm-hmm. that would be moral. It, reducing human situation or hurting people in some way would be immoral. Sure. And as far as your reference to animals, I don't know if animals can exert be moral or immoral, but humans can certainly be immoral towards animals uh, sure. or, or moral towards them. I think those are all uh, you know, valid points and all up for discussion about where we want to fall on this moral landscape. So if you have a, a, a continuum and you have a valid reason to, let's say, include chimpanzees in, in that continuum, right? Now we're all of a sudden... Um, addressing our actions as they relate to chimpanzees instead of just how they relate to ourselves and other human beings. Right. So wanting to include other animals, I think, is sort of like moral icing on the cake. But <laughs> right. the, the basic foundation is we're talking about human beings. Sure, we're keeping that discussion narrow on the subject for today. Uh, yeah, and, and just I think in general. I think if you're talking about morality in general and you're talking, I mean, you're only going to be talking to a human being about this. This is the only, we're the only species that we know of that has these kinds of conversations. We're the only species that we know of that have these moral conundrums. I think we are talking about a human experiment. We're not talking about um, a universe of just rocks. There is no morality in that universe. And we're not talking about including every single species, at least not at the base level. At the very base level, we're talking about how to increase our happiness and well-being and the, those of others that we love. And, and, and even more still, if we want to be even more moral, those of those that uh, the increasing the well-beings of those we don't even know, those we don't love. So just humanity as a whole. So that's one of the basic foundations. The idea is that there is a continuum and that you can move along that continuum based on your decisions, based on the things that you do out in the world, things that you say to different people, and the ways that you behave. 
So how does that sound for an initial sort of starting point as a foundational element of morality? I think it sounds just fine. I, it's clear that you've given us some thought. Sure. You've put some effort into trying to come up with something for yourself because it sounds like you haven't just received a moral code from some authority and just accepted it and abided by it. You put thought into it. Um, does that sound right? I mean, were you raised with like a certain moral code that your parents or whoever tried to enforce on you? Yeah, I mean, there was, I think, I think to some degree, everybody is getting back to the foundations of morality. So there are, as I see it, um, and I'm curious to hear your feedback on it. Uh, there are objective aspects to what we consider moral or immoral. And the basis of most of these object, the objectivity or the objective element of morality is that there are things that we can do outside of our head, right? So they are objective by nature. They're not subjective. They're not just in our minds that can demonstrably hurt other people and make things worse off for society as a whole. And I think that's sort of irrefutable, right? Like you could go out into society and you could set off a bomb, for instance, and there's no subjective way to look at it. There's no reason to take into account anything subjective there. You've objectively destroyed, let's say, a Starbucks, right? And now killed, let's say, 12 people, right? Sure. So objectively, you've committed a moral wrong. And it's those objective facts that inform the morality or immorality of our actions. So the reason why we call a bomber, right, somebody who bombs a Starbucks or whatever, an immoral person is because we can measure, we have a, a very good understanding of the human body, its physiology, its biology, its evolution, and so on. And so we can say blowing people up is bad for those people. It's not something we can survive. It's not like running into a Starbucks and giving everybody a hug, right? There's a huge difference, and we understand what's good and what's bad for the human body. So we can say, because a bomber goes in and blows up a bunch of people, that that's an immoral act. And we don't have to have any subjective element to that. Okay. I'd, 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 I'd agree with you there. Okay. Kill a bunch of people. Those people's lives are going to end. They can't contribute to society anymore. Their family is going to suffer it's going to ripple out and cause a lot of different destructive consequences, you know, from that one act, you know, right. setting off a bomb only takes an instant, but the damage is going to go on for months, years, or however long. Yeah. And not, even, and, and not to mention the death of the 12 individuals. So we have objective, falsifiable, verifiable, quantifiable, qualifiable, excuse me, qualifiable, damage to human bodies that anybody, any person can walk into, and this is why it's objective, any person can walk in and assess, right? This person lost this limb, they died because of this loss of blood, they died because of blunt force trauma to their head or whatever, you could take all that information in, and th these are objective facts in the world that can be verified by other people. So an understanding of the limitations of the human body, for instance, and what actually causes suffering is an objective, completely scientific methodology that we use to inform whether or not what we just did was moral or immoral. So just to lay that out there. 
so there's an idea behind how our morality can be and is, I think, objective in nature. But there's another foundational element to morality, and that is the subjective nature of it. And I think that a lot of people want subjective morality to be a very... They, they, they try to characterize it in a specific way. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back against that a little bit because I feel like they lose the subjects in their explanation. So I'll, I'll get to a, an... I think a, a, an example is, is a good one. Okay. A good place to start. So a lot of the times when I hear people say that morality is completely subjective... They say something like, well, if, if you're a serial killer, so let's say you're Ted Bundy, right? You don't think killing people is wrong. Therefore, morality is subjective, right? You don't have that moral compass or you don't have that specific moral belief or understanding or whatever. And so you think killing people is fine and that's why you're a serial killer, probably, Uh and so, therefore, morality is subjective. The other thing I hear often is people will say, well, take the example of, you know, like an ancient society. And because societies, a lot of people will say this, morality is subjective because it's about a social agreement, right? So if society says that, let's say, slavery is okay or, or pederasty in the, in the case of ancient Greece or whatever, if society says it's okay, then it's moral for that time and place. And I would push back on that and say that that is not an example of subjective morality. Okay. What is that then? That is an example of, in the case of the serial killer, an immoral person, and we can say that they're immoral without any qualm, and an immoral society. And we can say that they're immoral without any qualm. The example of subjective morality that I would like to, to point us at, instead of saying a society determines what it is or an individual determines what it is, is what about the victim? So now you've got a society, let's take ancient Greece, where children are, being, you know, are, are having sex with adult men. Right, adult or adult men are are practicing sexual relations with young boys. Mm -hmm. That was part of their society. They considered that moral. Uh, but what about the young boys? I don't think society imposes a morality onto a group of people. I think the people within that society, if asked, and they should be asked, in order for it to be a, a an uh, excuse me, a moral society, and I don't mean amoral, I mean a moral society. In order for society to be moral, we have to take into account, in the case of ancient Greece, the voices and the wants and needs and the desires and the trauma and the testimony of the children that okay. are being put, at, that are in that system, that, are, that the adult men are having sex with. Do they want this to happen to them? Do they report any problems with it? Do they view it as rape? Is this something that they enjoy? Or is it something that they hold their hand up and say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not cool with this? Sure. And that I is a demonstration of subjective morality. Okay. Is the subject determines what's moral or immoral as it's happening to them. So if you do something to somebody and they say, hey, I'm, I'm cool with that. That was cool. And I'll give an example later. Then you have not committed an immoral act. 
But if you do something to somebody and they say, that caused me harm, that caused me hurt, that caused me pain, that caused me suffering, then you have committed a moral act, an immoral act, excuse me. Okay. What were you going to say, though? Sorry. It's fine. No, go ahead. It's fine. Pass. Okay. So let's take an example because it might help uh, illustrate the idea. What I'm trying to do essentially is flip the script. People say this is moral by fiat, or they're saying an ancient society says it was, so it was for them. They're not taking into account the actual subjects of the action, so the people that are actually being acted upon. They say slavery was fine for the United States back in the day when people thought it was okay, but they're not saying, what did the slaves think? What did the slaves want to have happen to them? In lies the moral morality or immorality of that particular society. And that's why I want to flip the script. Okay, well, I would say as far as the slavery in the United States things go, thing goes, we know that there were objections even when the Constitution was written. You can look at the, uh, <laughs> uh, the three-fifths compromise where slaves in slaveholding states were only counted as three-fifths of a person. That was a compromise because there were people who said, no way should we count slaves you know, in the census for apportionment purposes. And that, that, I don't think that was just politics. I think there were people at the time who said slavery is immoral, full stop. And so as far as a, a society that's immoral, I think you make a good point, Paul. The, when, when damage is being done by one group of people to another or by an individual to another, that's an immoral thing. And, and you can extend it further. <laughs> Obviously, people were conquered and subjected in Africa, which would have caused great and terrible destruction to the societies that were already there. And they were attacking each other. Unfortunately, most of those societies were, were, didn't have writing. And so we don't have records of what was going on in, because most of the slaves were taken from the west coast of Africa. We don't know what was going on in that area or deeper in, inside those countries, but it, I'm sure it was horrible. It would have been warfare, conquering, uh, capturing people, bringing them to America, forcing them into chattel slavery where they're possessed by another person their children are also slaves you know it's you know it was a horrible system um so uh, you know to to the people who were benefiting they could have seen it as moral but it would have been just a small sliver of the people in the society who were benefiting from all that misery and death and destruction well right and the the point i'm trying to make is that Looking back at an ancient society or looking back at our society in its antiquity and saying that that was moral for them at that time and then saying because morality is subjective, then, mm, you know, a group of people who determine that these rules are the rules we should live by, they create morality. I think that's hogwash. Ask the people that are being subjugated. Ask the people that are being forced to you know to have sex or ask the people that are being forced to be slaves or ask ask the lowest common denominator ask the subjects if you want to get to the bottom of a subjective morality and if you want to have a subjective morality or a subjective component to morality don't lose sight of the subject that's what i would say and i think most people when i talk to them about subjective morality cuz i would usually take the position that objective morality is sort of the dominant aspect of morality. 
But it, it wasn't until I had multiple conversations with people that I realized that it's subjective in this way. So this will help demonstrate it, I think. And that there's definitely a subjective element to it. Um, but just to be clear, if, if you think that a person determines their own morality or a society determines a morality... And therefore, this and that ancient society, it was moral for them at that time. I don't know if you've heard that argument, but I've heard that probably a thousand times. Sure. That's bullshit. You it's, are either going to be a moral society based on the lowest common denominator, meaning the subjects in question. So if, if you're, t you know, they say, well, slavery was fine for this and this society. They're not taking into account the slaves. Well, pederasty was fine for this in this society. Well, they're not taking into account the testimony and the wanting and the and the desires of those children that are being sexually, uh, uh, you know, whatever, taken advantage of or whatever. Or in the case of Greece, they would say sexually educated, right? <laughs> but that is not a moral society because it's not taking into account the subjects of whatever the, the action is, whether it's slavery or whether it's pederasty. But... You were going to say something, and then I can get into my uh, example. No, I wasn't. I finished my point. Okay. So a great example of this, and this came up in a previous podcast, was let's say you lined up 10 people, and then you cracked a whip across their backs one at a time. Nine out of 10 people may say, ah, no, 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 not my cup of tea at all. That hurt. Ouch. Please don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. One out of those 10 people may have been like, hey, yeah, that was pretty hot. I like my, that. Let's yeah. get some freak on. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. So you're talking about consent there or in the well, I'm talking about the subjective element of morality in nine out of 10 of those whippings. You have done an immoral thing in one out of 10 because the subject said, well, I was I was cool with that. That was that was hot. You have not committed an immoral act. Not according to that person, not according to that subject. Okay. They were fine with it. Yeah. So it comes down to a lot of times, and in lies the subjectivity of morality. It comes down to the wants and desires of the subject, of the person being acted upon. And that is what I want to submit as another foundational element, the subjective foundational element of morality. And I just wanted to... Do you have any feedback on that, or does that make sense? That all seems very logically consistent. I can see where you started and how you reached your end, and I don't have any objections to it. In your, your the, in the book, The Moral Landscape, that you referred to at the beginning, mm, yeah. does he go into this subject? Of a, no. A, does a per, the subject? No, he talks about objective morality as being our basis for morality. Okay. So he he's focusing solely on the objective element of morality. Of, of suffering versus increasing right. life. Right. Yeah. Right. But but the idea here is someone's account of suffering is a subjective account. So you take the example of cracking a whip over 10 people's backs. One of those 10 people was totally fine with that. And so you have not committed an immoral act. But the same exact act could be okay for one person and not for nine. And in lies the subjective element of morality. I think the overall act, if you were going to take an objective look at morality, whipping somebody with a bullwhip would be objectively wrong because we can show that it causes pain, it 
opens up the skin. There's loss of blood. It causes suffering. There's trauma. There'd be post-trauma and so on. But those objective facts are still in some way subject to the actual people being whipped. Do they want this to happen? And so the act of whipping somebody, let's say take the one of 10, right? The one person that was like, hey, that was hot, right? You would have to ask that person then, at what point do you want this activity to stop? What's your safe word, right? Armadillo, I'm done, tap out, right? I need to go recover because we recognize there are physiological limitations on the human body. And at a certain point, let's say whip lashing number 86, you're going to die. You're going to pass out and die and bleed to death. And you've already said, I don't want that to happen. I just like being cracked a few times because it turns me on, right? So maybe after six, you're like, armadillo, right? But in lies, we have objective facts about this action. And we know that to take you to the 87th lashing would be immoral. Even based on your own, you say, I like it, but I don't want to die. I, you know, I don't want to be whipped to death. I just like to get a little freak on, right? Okay. And then you have your safe word. So you're not committing an immoral act, even though it's the exact same action that nine out of 10 people said they are not cool with and that was definitely immoral and you need to go to jail or whatever, right? You need to be either stop doing it or whatever. Determ- we have to determine what the parameters of the, of the act was. But anyway, all right, that's well- the idea then. These two things are one and the same in, in a lot of ways. They play, they interplay off of each other to create a cohesive moral action or an immoral action. All right. Fair enough. What if, okay, let's say, Paul, you and I are, we're buddies. We're buddies, and we're going to enter into some kind of an agreement. Okay. Let's say that I'm, I'm really suicidal, and I have this crazy fantasy. I've been thinking about it for years. Hmm. I want someone to cut me up, cook me, and eat me. All right. And, I w- and you, you've been, just by, by coincidence, you've been fantasizing about chopping somebody up, cooking them, and eating them mm-hmm. piece by piece until they're dead, until you've cut off enough pieces of their body that they can no longer sustain life and they die. Sure. Uh, we're both in agreement, totally in accord, like, let's do this. Where, where does that fall on your objective? Because objectively, you know, my mom's going to be like, where did my son go? Uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to have a job and contribute to society. I'm not going to be able to do my volunteer work at the hub anymore. Mm-hmm. But subjectively, it's it's my dream. So how does that work out? Well, you tell me. Based on this now continuum that I've laid out and the objective and subjective elements of what you're saying, is me, I guess, killing you and you wanting to die, is that an immoral transaction? We understand that the objective facts are that you'll be dead, right? which we consider as human beings sort of, generally speaking, a moral wrong. It's an immoral thing to kill somebody, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah. There are... There are well, somebody's terminally ill. Caveats or, yeah. to that, right? There's or, death or, with dignity, right? There's I'm, I'm sick of being alive because I'm in constant pain and suffering, so we put somebody down as a mercy. There's also self-defense. Self-defense. You're totally... And within your right, I think, to kill somebody that's trying to kill you or somebody else who's innocent, right? If you've got, if somebody's trying to kill a child or whatever and you, they can't defend themselves and you defend them, mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. within yeah. your moral right. But you're, uh, you know, a lucid adult who wants to be killed. 
and I am a lucid adult who wants to kill you or wants to kill, right? Yeah, yeah. Where is the immoral act then? Where is the pain and suffering to the person? Because in lies the subjective element of morality. It is true, objectively, you will not be able to contribute to society, and there may be some pain involved in what your family wants. But couldn't we mitigate that objective pain to your family by explaining to them this is what we plan on doing like I'm ready to die and this is how I want to die and here's the guy that's going to do it and so on and so bringing all of them into the fold and well, handling those potential objections or whatever I could see a few problems with that so well, sure it wouldn't my, be an my mom easy would call the cops necessarily you know my mom would call the cops on you because it's a crime technically to cut somebody up and eat them and, or kill them, I suppose. I don't. I don't know if cannibalism specifically is against the law, I'm but I, sure I know murder I is. I would agree to kill or to eating you, but right, right, right. Yeah, we're, we're doing a hypothetical. I know, but if it's hypothetical, then then who cares if it's a crime or not? Let's just talk okay. about the morality of it, because there are lots of things that are crime that don't have anything to do with moral good or bad. I don't There's know. A lot of things that are illegal or against the law that have nothing to do with morality. Gotcha. Well, if I'm if I want to be killed because I'm I have I'm emotionally suffering so much. I guess that'll be eliminated at, at the expense of my family, their pain increasing. I guess that's why most, you know, suicide in general would be considered immoral in most circumstances because, you know, one person perhaps temporarily is going through something very dark, a bleak time, mm -hmm. and they want to eliminate that pain because they, they just can't see a way out or they think that, they think that they're such a bad person that they're doing society a favor by eliminating themselves. But f factually speaking, um, it does increase pain. You know, people like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted, Ted, Ted Bundy, those guys don't commit suicide. You have to force them to stop. Those are the guys that are committing a lot of destruction who should take themselves out, but they never do. Or like sure. the, the Aurora movie theater shooter. Why did he do that? He should have just shot himself. Like, do the right thing. Kill yourself. Don't go shoot up a movie theater. Sure. So what's your question? I didn't have a question. I was just responding. Oh, okay. To, to the, to well, the, so the idea, the idea how, of how objective. How would we handle, you, would we you're handle talking the about morality it. of you wanting to die and me wanting to be the person that kills you? And you electing me to do it and us having some sort of contractual agreement where mm -hmm, you die mm -hmm. and I, I kill you. Right. And then we're talking about your family and whatnot. This, to me, is the death with dignity argument right here. So the only, the only, the only issue that we're really addressing of mor moral right or wrong is are you in a position where temporarily you want to die because you're depressed? Or do you actually fully want to die? As in, it doesn't matter what your mind state is, you're ready to die, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the question, I think. Is that does that help? Yeah, elaborate. I, so I guess let's so. ask this. So, in this state, according to your hypothetical, are you ready to die, or are you just in a bad place mentally? And you know, on Tuesday you may not want to, but today is Thursday, and so you're like, "Yep, I'm ready to go." It's too subjective. You can't. Well, how how can you possibly? You. It's your hypothetical. No. So, are you the ready to die, or is this a hypothetical? Or is this well, it would a be a ready to die. Like, is this I've, been, a I've been thinking about this for depressed years. Depressed state that you found yourself in, and normally, or uh, maybe not even normally, but okay, thirty percent of the time you don't want to die, and then seventy percent of the time you do, or whatever. No, uh, let's say uh, I'm happy about it, 
I want to die, not because I'm depressed, but because it's my dream. Okay, well then, I, I, where's the immoral issue? Especially if this is... I would say that in order to ensure that this is morally acceptable, that you would include your loved ones and family and the people that maybe don't want you to die sure, in sure. on this whole process. I would say that would be a, a step number one in ensuring that this is a morally correct act. All right. That sounds fine. That would be a tough conversation to have. <laughs> sure, but that way, we, that way we talk to the objective side of this and we try to mitigate that objective... Uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? That, that objective result in the world, right? That ripple effect that you were talking about. All right. But as a subject, as a person, you're fine with dying. So the subjective element of it is completely moral. The only problem we have is the objective side of it. Now, how is society? How is your family? How are things outside of your subjective mind? How are they going to respond, and how do we mitigate their response, whether it be good or bad? All right, there may be some ex-girlfriends that don't like you that are like, fucking finally. <laughs> finally, yeah. Oh, God, I was, he'd been talking about it for years, and I've just been <laughs> waiting for to get it over with. And then there may be some folks in your life, like, like you mentioned your mom or whatever, who would say, absolutely not, this is not okay. You know, right. There would be conversations to be had there, potentially, if you were going to potentially try and mitigate that objective immoral response. I gotcha. That would that could classify that act as immoral. So taking us out of uh you know sort of the Q&A or the what about this or what about that and getting back to some foundational elements of morality. There's one other thing that I think we have to touch on as a foundational element and this this to me isn't a uh, foundational in the sense that it's part of like let's say the four pillars or in the in the case of this argument it's three right it's that there is a moral landscape that there is a moral continuum and that things that can happen just to you know reiterate what we've been talking about to either push you towards the good side or the positive side the positive benefit side or the bad side so that has to be understood that there's an objective element to morality being the scientific facts we know about physical limitations about what causes psychological damage right and then there's the subjective element of morality and that is the subjects themselves right whether or not they want things to happen to them whether or not the actions being taken are immoral in their view right so built upon that i think you can lay out sort of another element and it's foundational in the sense that i think it has to be taken into account is what we consider basic human rights. So the UN has a list of human rights, but for instance, we agree that we have a right to life. And I think that we have good arguments to support those rights. I think they're sound and valid. I don't think you can argue against a right to life without forfeiting your own. Um, and then... We have th other certain ones that are a little bit more tertiary, but certainly elemental to our understanding of how to create a society that's beneficial for everybody is like the right to free speech, um, the right to privacy, to be left alone. Uh, and then to me, the one that's, I think, most paramount and the one that most invo involves its or is most intertwined in mor moral decisions is the right to bodily autonomy, the right to 
do to your body what you wish or to have done to your body what you wish. So the right for you to decide what happens to your body in real time, right? So it, this the perfect example of this is rape, right? What happens to your body should be up to you. And rape is a violation because not only can we point to the objective facts of, you know, pain, suffering, trauma, post-trauma, and so on, which are all objectively quantifiable and verifiable, but we have the subjective element of do you want somebody to forcibly take your body over and do things to it that you don't want to have happen, right? There are certainly people that would say, I have a rape fantasy. So maybe they look for those types of interactions or maybe they role play with somebody that they trust so that they know they're not going to get, let's say, herpes or something, right? right that would be, a, a, like you said, a role playing. I don't think consensual rape is even a thing. Those two concepts well, are no, contradictory. I, no, I agree. I agree. I'm just saying that there, there are people that have rape fantasies sure. where they have a fantasy where they're being taken over against their will. Now, the fact that they want it to happen negates the word rape. It's no longer a rape, but it is a rape fantasy. Okay, good. Right? Got it. We're, yeah. we're, 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 we're square, on, we're square on that. Yeah. yeah. But in lies another subjective element to it. But bodily autonomy does factor into why we consider things immoral, as does a person's right to life. We recognize these basic human rights, okay, yeah. and we can prop them up with evidence and reason, re <laughs> I think, relatively easily. And for instance, we can demonstrate and we can argue why the death penalty is an incorrect action. Something like that. Sure. So, or why it's an immoral thing. So I wanted to lay those out. That's what I have so far. And so if we, if we you know, delve into, let's say, the human rights aspect of it, we build a better understanding of why certain things are immoral on their face, right? Why, why is it wrong to take somebody's body over without their wanting. But these are subjective elements of morality that prop up that idea that it's a subjective element. Because the objective side of morality would be that if you take over somebody's body and commit traumas, that's all measurable and verifiable in the objective world. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's why these elements are, are kind of put together. And that's why I meld them together into this foundation because they sort of play off of each other for one. And then they also prop up the idea of what is or isn't an immoral action. And it's measured on that continuum. So there's some stuff borrowed from Sam Harris's uh, book. There's some stuff borrowed from, um, you know, I, I follow uh, T.J. Kirk, uh, he's a subjective moral person. He thinks it's all subjective, as do many people, David Pakman and so on. And these are all people that put this out into the world and so as a philosophy, and so I try to engage with that as much as possible. And it occurs to me that it is amalgamation or a, an intermingling of the two based on those two basic ideas that we have a continuum, that it is possible to move across that continuum, and that we have basic human rights. So there are some things, like for instance, the basic human rights keep the continuum in check. It's kind of like a check and balance. 
you could say, for instance, that by killing half of the world's population, you could increase the remaining half's happiness by like 15-fold or whatever, right? So you could try to rationalize your way towards mass murder. Sure. I'd like to come back to an earlier example you made about the Starbucks. It reminded me of the old saying, uh, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So let's say I'm like an eco-warrior and I'm like, Starbucks commits massive pollution. They spew all these greenhouse gases. They like burn down the jungle to grow their trees. I, I'm just I'm just saying this is sure. what an eco-terrorist might say. Sure. Um, and I could say if I blow up enough Starbucks, people are going to stop shopping at Starbucks. Starbucks is going to go out of business and then the planet's better off. In right. the long run. So, uh, yeah, of course, there's always a way to rationalize destructive behavior. Sure. So what keeps that rationality in check, though, is these ideas that each individual person has a right to bodily autonomy and a right to life. There must be or there ought to be a solution that we examine and try to implement that does not invalidate or in any way offend these basic human rights because even though it may be true that killing 50 percent of the world's population would hugely benefit the remaining 50 what kind of world would that be if the remaining 50 were constantly at unease and distraught over not only what happened but what may happen again in the future human beings we can show are live terrible lives when they're constantly worried about whether or not they're going to be murdered any second, right? That's why we've seen such flourishing with the advent of farming and keeping predators away and fences. And we've, we've innovated our way out of the food chain because it was such a trauma to us, (laughs) right? And look at how much we've been able to do in the 12,000 or 13,000 years since that innovation of farming by taking ourselves out of the food chain and not having to worry if we're going to be, you know, trampled by elephants or attacked by a panther or whatever, right? Or even attacked by each other. I'm mm-hmm. sure each other was a much more was much more in our minds than tigers and wolves and shit like that. Well, sure, yeah. I mean, the- but being cool. able to domesticate ourselves. Yeah, was a huge was a huge innovation and a huge benefit. Uh, so okay, so so that's that's what I want to put to you. That's what I want to put to people as a way to measure, identify, and and determine what their actions are doing, what their actions, what actions they should be doing, what things they should avoid. Right. I think I think what the main problem that people have with morality and moral discussion. So if you take the moral landscape by Sam Harris is, is he doesn't give us anything to actually work on, right? He doesn't lay out a moral foundation to utilize in our daily lives. He just talks about peaks and valleys and that it's possible that different actions can get you to different peaks or different valleys. Right, that because there is a landscape. Each person, as we're going along through life, has to make those decisions constantly. So like, let's say you're working with someone else and you make a mistake, you could confess and try to make it right, or you could try to conceal and hide the fact that you made that mistake. And one would be one would probably be moral and one would be immoral, more right. than likely. And so it's up to the individual to decide how to do that. And so uh, I, guess it, it, I, well, I guess what I would ask you, Paul, is the, this discussion we're having and your 
your principle of objective versus subjective ways of, of evaluating morality. This sounds like like a, an evolution in your thinking on the concept of morality. Is that right? Oh yeah, definitely. Is it yeah. something? Is it something you spend a lot of time? Yeah, thinking about. Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. I've been talking and thinking about morality for probably the last eight years okay. on a fairly regular basis with people that I know and any chance I get. Um, and trying to understand sort of the basic elements because uh, saying that morality is subjective full stop was never satisfactory to me because that means any person can say this is moral or this is immoral. Sure. Or any society can just claim that what they're doing is moral or immoral, right? And that's clearly wrong because we could take the most, you know, inflammatory example of, you know, Nazi Germany right. thought they were doing something that's funny. I was, morally correct. I was just thinking about Poland, yeah. Yeah, when, and clearly they weren't, right? By right. any objective standard ever, they were not doing a good thing <laughs> for society as a whole or humanity in general, right? Yeah. Now, that being said, the 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 idea that morality is objective, full stop, um, never really sat with me because, well, for one, I think there are good cases to be made for a subjective element to morality. I think if you're going to weigh morality, which is which is more true, is it more subjective or more objective? I think you. I think if you're honest with yourself, you fall on objective because what we learn from the objective world is which actions are actually immoral and which ones aren't. So let's take an example, right? Because this is easy. So up until very recently in human history, burning fossil fuels was a moral good. Yeah, for sure. We didn't know and we didn't have the information to measure the chemistry of our atmosphere. But as soon as we did, and as soon as we did understand chemistry to the degree that we do today, which is objective to its core, chemistry has nothing to do with the subjective world, right? It is an objective scientific <laughs> endeavor, okay, one that was hard fought. Now that we understand what we're doing to the environment and the chemistry that we're changing in our atmosphere... We understand that burning fossil fuels is going to end up being a moral wrong. It's still, at the margin, better for us, right? It keeps our electricity on. It gets us to work. It gets us to school. It provides it gets, us bountiful harvests exactly. with, our, with our modern farming techniques. It refrigerates our food. It does everything. It, it creates a lot of our clothes. Ambulances can drive around and save people's lives because they have gas in the tank. Exactly. And it, it gives us a ton of moral benefit. And I, I get annoyed with people that are like, oh, fossil fuel companies are terrible. It's like, well, not exactly. They've become terrible when they deny what's happening to the environment. It, I, think, I think fossil fuel could, could just back their way out of this whole thing by saying, look, for years and years and years and decades and decades, we were doing a moral a moral good for society. There's no question about that. But now we understand that there is a limit. There's an upper limit, just like the lashes we were talking about with that one person, right? You could get to lash number seven and they go, armadillo, tap out. We're at a point now with the environment, with, our, with the chemistry of our atmosphere, that we should be tapping out. The immoral problem that we're faced with is that fossil fuel companies don't want to acknowledge it and they campaign against it right and they obfuscate and yeah they right. fought like the uh the cigarette companies exactly. playbook of 
buying scientists to produce the science that you want. Exactly. And, and so I, I think... It's, the, a, it's the, an objective fact that we're changing the chemistry of our environment okay. and that we are now committing an immoral act by burning fossil fuels if we could be transferring it over to a cleaner energy source. Okay. Because we have an objective understanding of the facts. We would not even know that we were committing immoral acts if we didn't have an objective understanding of our world. Okay. So that's very interesting because just like you are going through evolution, you're thinking about it. We as a species, as new information comes to light through our scientific research, mm-hmm. uh, our our morality as a species, like what's objective, changes when new information comes to light. Exactly. And we are in we are increasing our morality in a positive way, informing our morality in a positive way, more and more and more and more. Sure. Just the like... more science we understand and the more we understand about the objective world. It isn't subjective in the sense that you can just say it's okay or, or a society can just say it's okay. We have to check the objective facts of the matter. Bronson. Hey, knock it out. Do no. you have to be so weird? Knucklehead. We have to check with the objective facts to determine if what we're doing is right or wrong. Okay, okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. It was just like when it was revealed just how badly and how widespread abuse of children was in the Catholic Church in recent years that it sort of shocked and appalled most people in society, unlike your Greek example where it was just considered like, I don't know, like an apprentice-master relationship or something, you know, mm-hmm. a wiser, older man. So, so yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. Good. I'm glad. I was worried that it wouldn't, uh, but I've given it a lot of thought. <laughs> well, let me ask you, if, if, unless there's more points you want to make on that. Because I, I was just wondering, and it, as I mentioned a second ago, it's, it, it's really private, the decisions that go on in, in an individual's head on how to, how to be moral. Should I do this thing that's going to help myself in the short term and will hurt other people? Or should I do something that will, you know, maybe not benefit me as much, but it won't hurt anyone else or it might even benefit other people? You know, it's something that each person has to go through and and make an individual decision upon constantly, like every day, minute by minute, you have to make these decisions. So kind of what, I guess, that's something that most people do pretty much automatically. Sure. I'm not going to sit there and think, oh, moral code that I learned or whatever, like, what do you think is the benefit of spending time the way you've done to consider the the options and all the different variables? Like, how does that benefit you, or or how might it benefit a different someone else? Sure. So I think uh, it it benefits you in the way that you describe. So your general ordinary whatever person that's not thinking about morality is just going to make decisions, and they're not necessarily going to be mindful of what they do or say right? They might take into account their short-term gain at the expense of other people. I think the more you think about morality and the more that you try to incorporate moral systems into your life, the objective, the subjective, these uh, the ideas of basic human rights, um, and, and that there is a continuum, that there's a way for you to move in a positive direction as opposed to a negative direction. If you take these into your thought process, it becomes like muscle memory, right? You start to think this way just in general. 
So you change your behaviors, you change your, your actions, you change your mind thought pro- or your thought process. So instead of being mindless, you become mindful. Instead of just doing things, right, and not really considering what it might do to other people or what you might be actually doing to yourself and not realizing it or the kind of damage you might cause or whatever. Instead of just thinking compulsively and doing impulsively, you are able to incorporate these ideas and it just starts to become part of the process. That's the key. I think that's the real trick. It's kind of like taking on a new, um, you know, a new uh, habit or something like that. These are exercises that you can do, ways that you can think so that now in your life you start to think that way. You may pause and be like, well, huh, well how is this going to affect <laughs> my wife or my child or my dog, you know, or whatever is, is it moral for me? Here's a good example. Let's, let's use an example because it might help illustrate. I don't want to take up too much time, but let's say you're determining whether or not you should get a dog. If all you think about is the benefit you're going to receive from that dog, the loves and hugs and kisses and the cuteness and all that stuff, and you don't take into account that that dog is going to be home alone for 10 hours every day because you have a full-time job. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you like to go out on the weekends, right? Because you're single or whatever. For sure. Or you're with somebody that yeah. likes to go out. You guys have a bowling league or whatever. And like, you, can't dig, yeah. you can't take a dog, right? What about the dog? Now here we're, we're, we're really putting a lot of icing on the moral cake because we're actually taking into account another species, right? But what about the dog? What about the dog? The dog may look happy every time it sees you. Sure. He's been bored for 10 hours. But yeah, he's been bored out of his mind for 10 hours. But how much moral or how much struggle mentally, emotionally, physically is that dog going through? Having been somebody who works with dogs, and ha- I've been doing this for years and years, right? 10 years probably. I see a lot of behavior in dogs that other people own that I do not see in my dogs because I didn't own a dog when I couldn't take care of it. When I had a full-time job, I didn't get a dog. Being involved in these moral processes and questions and answers and considerations of other things other than yourself led me to not get a dog when I had a full-time job. Now, I have plenty of time to spend with my dogs. And I honestly, I'm with them pretty much all the time. I take them everywhere I go. They, you know, we go on walks and stuff like that. This is a fulfilling lifestyle for the dog and it's fulfilling for me also. But if you're only going to take into account yourself, and not the dog, you're going to miss out on the whole side of morality that is the positive feedback loop. Now, you're not only getting something out of it, but the thing that you're with, in this case, a dog, is going to get something out of it too and have a positive experience. And that's going to feed into your positive experience and you're going to feed into it and so on. So I think that's really the key. That's really the benefit is you maximize the well-being of the things around you. And that in turn maximizes your well-being and so on. And so, and it just feeds back and forth. Okay. And I think that's really the key. Okay. That sounds great. But if you're not taking into account these other things, the objective facts of the world, the subjective of, of the subject, in this case, the dog, the subjective experience, well, you miss out on all that. And it just is about you. Right. And, and like you said, you get to terrible philosophies like Ayn Rand and well it's and, like you said you know, a, a political thinking about it over time and party. and wrestling with it allows you to internalize it so that it becomes automatic it's not something that you have to you're going to be more likely to make moral decisions if you if you do consider it often and 
make an importance to you you are conscious and deliberate about how you make decisions moral decisions yeah you really have to evaluate your values and figure out where these things lie on the scale from most valuable to least valuable and it's it's been eight years that i it's probably been longer than that now but it just being conservative or whatever it's been eight years that i really sat down and said to myself why do i not have a a easily explainable idea of what morality is i need to remedy that i need to solve that problem okay and i can't just say well it's subjective so it's whatever you want it to be that's not true and i can't say that it's fully objective right because there's clearly a subjective element to it right we are subjects in the world we're people and we have a subjective experience and it's part of that subjective experience that determines the morality of actions right whether or not we're suffering not all suffering is bleeding and dying right some suffering is internal and there are things that can happen in this world that can cause you great internal suffering right loneliness whatever so there is a subjective element to it now what's taken me so much time and so much effort is figuring out how to combine all these things together in a cohesive way that's coherent to other people that makes sense and that's really been the key and i feel like i'm finally ready to do it so here i am yeah well i think you did a fair job well thank you cool before we quit anything that i'm missing that should be is there anything that i'm missing that should be obvious or is there anything you're pointing that you're like well you didn't think about this or anything because i really want to get into some of those potential weeds or problems if possible no i mean i think it would be easy to come up with more examples like i did the cannibal one which is it's tricky it's complex but i think you can still sift through it and possibly come up with a solution so aside from coming up with more sticky tricky examples to throw at you i i think like i said i think you've thought it out it's logical and it's it's consistent like internally it's coherent so i don't have a problem with it at all i hope you keep it up Mm. and and figure out other ways i mean it isn't it's kind of an interesting subject i think people should spend more time thinking about it because most people are just uh like very uh, you know we all have a bias towards our own beliefs like i'm right and the other person's wrong and that's that's just bias there's no necessary it's not necessarily true uh so i think you know, to to take time to consider and to maybe be a little humble about it. I think that's fine to do. And, you know, it takes time. It's something that is an evolution. It's not something you never get to a state where you're perfectly moral. You might be more moral than you were in the past. Yeah. And you you keep going. I do have I do have one question for you. Go ahead. Which might have to do with morality. Sure. Uh, you're talking about Bronson. Mm-hmm. Your your my po- dog. Your pooch. He's mm-hmm. he's been on the podcast before. He makes appearances. Yeah. We've also had Muggsy on many episodes. Yes. He used to live here, but now he's got his forever home. Mm-hmm. Are you going to foster again? Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll be back in the fostering ring here pretty soon. Okay. Because I d- things I have to accomplish first. But. I'm a big time dog lover, and I I myself used to foster back mm-hmm. when I, I I'm not, I'm in an apartment working don't have the ability to take care of a dog right but fostering is a, a moral act because you help the dog you help the canine what am i trying to say the adoption agency you you take mm, yeah. you, you you take resource you know you make it so that their resources go further i think that's a very moral thing to do so oh, thank th- thanks you. for doing that i hope you get another dog soon
Yeah, me too. I've been thinking about it as part of the show, actually. Not this show, but a different show. Oh, got it. But one thing I wanted to touch base on is it sounds like what you said earlier um, when I asked you if there were anything I was missing or anything like that. You said, well, I could just throw more sticky situations at you. But you also said it sounds like you'd be able to work through them. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the foundation that I've built here and the 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 moral landscaping that I've done it sounds to me like you're satisfied. You think I could account for these sticky situations. It may take a while to get through it, but we can mm-hmm. come to a moral conclusion if I keep these things in mind. Sure, okay. sure. And you might, you might never achieve a perfect solution that eliminates all pain or, or whatever. No, yeah, but, of course. But it, the moral thing to do would be to enhance human well-being and reduce human suffering. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is do you think based on what you said, it sounds like you think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm asking, do you think that this foundation, that this structure that I've built, the moral landscaping that I've done, is going to be useful in tackling these issues? Because that's the point. The point is, is to take this on board and then use it in everyday life to answer everyday questions. Or in the case of what you were saying, you you could sort of artificially create these ideas or, you know, these moral conundrums or moral issues. But each one of the, so far, each one of those moral issues that I've taken on, if I use these foundational elements and I use these aspects of morality, I'm able to, it takes a long time, like you mentioned, but I'm able to work through them and find what I can, <laughs> Bronson, he's, that, I can definitely hear that. The kissing? Yeah. Bow, bow, bow. Uh, I can a moral puppy. Yeah, he is. I can definitely find what, would be a moral outcome. Yeah. Like I said, I think you've got a pretty good system. This is my first exposure to it. So again, uh, I've asked you and we've kind of gone back and forth. I've asked you some questions and asked you, asked you to defend yourself and (laughs) defend your logic. And I think you did an adequate or even possibly an admirable, admirable job of that. So um, yeah, I I don't find any fault with it at this time. Cool. Cool. Well, hopefully, uh, some of our listeners will email us at um, podcast at secularhub.org and give us some of these potential moral conundrums or voice their opinion on what I've said here today. Yeah, if you can write a conundrum that breaks Paul's system, right. we will share it on the podcast. Let's put it to the test. And it, even, if it's not, even if it's a conundrum that doesn't break the system but you want us to explore it on the podcast, that would be a good way for you to potentially get on the podcast. Or if you have a good enough emailing skills, you could include enough information for us to walk through your scenario and determine the moral outcome. Um, One of the big tests of this, and I've done it in my own life, but it would be in other people's lives, is to see how many moral outcomes we can actually come to and determine if any if our, if our actions are immoral. So if somebody says, I decided to do this and this was the outcome, do we know, are we able to assess, was that an immoral outcome? I think a lot of people are very readily going to take on an immoral position and then just say it's moral. So when I'm, when I'm thinking of these people, I think often of the religious or people that want 
the death penalty to be okay because they have a sense of vengeance. They want somebody to be punished. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that as human beings, as a very human thing to want, right? That's a very apish tendency of ours that we still haven't out uh, evolved. We may never. Um, but we see somebody potentially, like, like maybe somebody hurts us or harms us, right? And we want them to die because of the severity of how they harmed us. But is that moral? I think a lot of people would want that to be moral. They want to claim that they're moral. They're very uncomfortable saying, no, that's an immoral impulse of mine. But if we put it into this framework that I've built, and we take into account things like bodily autonomy and right to life and so on, is that a moral outcome? I think that the proof is in the pudding. If we can take the foundational uh, morality that I'm laying out here in my moral landscaping and put it to the test and determine whether or not for instance, that impulse that we have to kill the people that harm us. If we can determine whether that's moral or immoral, that would be a very good uh, test. That would be very good defi- like defining this framework as useful or functional. So I just encourage our listeners to potentially come up with these ideas, and maybe we could explore some of these in the future, mm-hmm. even without your our listeners' uh, sending in emails we could still do that but but it would be nice to to take on your guys's um and if you see specific you see, moral conundrums if yeah. you see paul down at the hub just whatever he's saying just interrupt him yeah give him a moral conundrum and just walk away yeah mic drop <laughs> i've actually had quite a few moral discussions with people at the hub so i know it's a place where, we, where it's possible to have all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. That email again is uh, podcast at secularhub.org. Uh, please send us your comments, questions, um, if you have questions specifically about the Hub or about this podcast or whatever. Just let us know. And thank you so much. Do you want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Goodbye.